This is the Gates Media Box Podcast. In this week's episode, I've got highlights from backstage at the Much Music Video Awards with Ed Sheeran, Avril Lavigne, and Classified, my interview with the stars of CTV's new homegrown comedy, Satisfaction, a Blu-ray review of Jack the Giant Slayer, plus music from Lexi and the Kill. First up, though, here's actor Billy Crystal talking about Mike Wazowski and Disney Pixar's new film, Monsters University, the prequel to Monsters, Inc. I actually think this is the most my most favorite character I've ever played in anything um, because I, I don't know what it is about him. Well, I do know. I love his I love his personality. I love that he stands up for himself. I love that he's forever positive. I love when something gets in his way, he either goes over it, around it, or through it, and, and somehow comes out the other side. And I mean, every picture he takes, it's just the top of his head. <laughs> but he, it's, he, I'm a college... He doesn't even see that he's not in it. And in the first movie, he was on a cover of a magazine, and he wasn't there. And I love that he's positive. I love that he's a leader of monsters. I love that he he has a great sense of humor, and I love that he stands up for himself, and, and, uh, and I love that he's cranky, too. I think that's great. It's Wednesday, June 19th, 2013, and I'm Andrew Powell, the owner and editor-in-chief of The Gate. Earlier today, Billy Crystal was here in Toronto, and he sat down with the press to talk about his career and to answer questions about Monsters University, which opens in theaters this Friday. The new animated movie jumps back to look at how Mike and Sully first became friends during their days in university as they were studying to become scarers. Here are a few highlights from the interview with Crystal, where he opens up about his career, the process of recording the new film, and a few of his personal moments. I got a phone call that said, uh, John Lasseter is on the phone. So I just picked it up and I said, whatever it is, yes. And where are you? Oh, he said, I want to come over and talk to you. So I said, where are you? He said, I'm, I'm actually like on your block uh, where my office is. And I said, he was there in like 30 seconds later. He was outside. <laughs> and he said, we have a thing. It's called the new movie. We want you to play this guy. And here's what he looks like. And from a little, like, a uh, cake box, he took out, and it's gray. Uh, I forget what they call them. Huh? A maquette. And he took it out, and um, there was this guy. There was Mike. And I just looked at him, and I just, wow. Um, he told me the story, which I went, wow. It, that was, it was such a mind-blowing idea of what's in the closet, this is their profession, the whole concept of the doors. He showed me photographs. Of, I thought it was the most insanely brilliant uh, concept of, of uh, fear. Uh, and, and what is that? Con it was amazing to me that they could think of this to, 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 to make into a story that kids would not be scared of but would l eventually love these guys and break down their fears, you know? So I knew what Mike looked like right away. What he sounded like was a challenge. Um, wh well, what could he be? And then he said, well, here's, we've, we've done some screen tests with you. So he gave me, at that point, it was a cassette, <laughs> a VHS cassette. Um, was that long ago? It was 12 years ago, more than that. Um, and there was pretty much this Mike, but they took scenes from movies and put those scenes into Mike's face. So uh, they lines from Harry and Sally um, uh, about the uh, stupid wagon wheel coffee table, but he was actually standing <laughs> underneath a wagon wheel coffee table was right. this little guy. And then, you know, that uh, didn't sound right and so on and so forth. And then I had done a character with Christopher Guest on SNL and they were, it was William, uh, William Frankie, they were masochists. 
I hate when that happens, right. guys. Yeah, yeah. And that I went, oh, well, that guy could be in there. And so it, so it, you know, I hate when that ha became sort of Mike's voice. The way J John Lasseter, who is our Walt Disney, uh, this man has created a life for all of us in the f to, to go to in the film world with these, this amazing kind of imagination that I think even Mr. Disney himself would just say, uh, wow, you know, it just a stunning world that he's created with this level of entertainment that you can bring everybody to and feel safe going to a movie with your whole family. That's a real extraordinary gift to all of us. And it was at a birthday, his 50th birthday party, and uh, as a, it surprised him, and he came up to me and said, uh, and it's 12 years later, you know, we came out in 2001, and uh, so this is about three and a half years ago or something. He said, we're going to make a sequel, but it's a prequel. They're in college, and he walked away, <laughs> and, that, and, and that was it. And I just started laughing, going, wow, it's going to be good. Wow, a great idea. How did they become friends? What a great place to, to, to put them in at that, that age of decision-making and, and uh, how that informs who you are. So uh, that's all I know. The, the level of secrecy on these scripts is astounding. We've sort of got an outline. It, it was sort of akin to, to working with Woody Allen when I did Deconstructing Harry. You basically only get your pages and a, and a handwritten note from him to say what he wants, and I'll see you there. Do you want to do this? And you just, again, I'm going. But this one, the first one, was such a good movie and a brilliant concept that this, coming back with this concept, you knew it would be great. And what we, you then, the night before you show up for the first session, you get hand-delivered the script, uh, and then it's all watermarked with special paper and all kinds of stuff, and you have to give it back the next day. And when you give it back, it's shredded like in front of you and stuff, so, <laughs> so it doesn't get out to yeah. Nicky Fink or any of those <laughs> journalists. And um, and talk about monsters in the closet. And um, and I and uh, I uh, I don't mean that in that way. And um, and that's sort of the secrecy of it. But what they do do, and I will answer your question. Um, as Larry Gelbart, the great Larry Gelbart once said to me, I, I know what I'll think when I say it, um, <laughs> is that they're constantly reworking the story. So my first session with John was about four hours long, and we did the opening and so forth, and it was a very different opening than it is now because three months later we redid it again because they said, you know, it's not working the way we want. So they're always rewriting. They take it back to this amazing university up in Emeryville, California, and if, if you've all been there, you'd see it's phenomenal. If not, next junket, make sure you get on the list. Um, it's the most creative place you can imagine. And it's a big, it's, it's like Monsters, Inc. It's this big factory of, of fun. And um, then they work and you see very rough, sort of um, badly drawn computer animation, mostly stick characters. It's kind of strange looking. <clears throat> and they try it out. And then they come back and they keep polishing. So they're always working the story. They're always rewriting the story um, right till the very end. I, I finished about two and a half months ago. And I, so I worked about two years, just about two years on it. And it's like about every three months and you're always rewriting. The, the, the hardest thing for me is, is uh, and that's why the director of these movies is so important in this 
Dan Scanlon directed this, who's like a hipster. He's like a 50s hipster. He's a young guy, um, really funny, but he would paint the picture for us, and sometimes literally with, with paintings, these beautiful uh, uh, computer-generated, they look like oil paintings of where we are. So I know what the dorm looks like. I know what the frata, I know what the, that the, the hall where, the, um, where Alfred Molina, who's great in it, is our teacher, you know, in that, in that beautiful hall, what they look like, and who, who we're acting with, what Helen Mirren looks like mm -hmm. in the, you know. So we're surrounded by at least renderings of them. That, to me, that's the hardest thing is where am I, what am I doing? And the, uh, uh, an interesting character emerged from it who has two moments in this movie. In the, on the first day of school, and if you stay through the total end of the credits, he, he has a little tag, and that's this slug character. And in the first movie, where, uh, where Pete Docter uh, directed that, who won an Oscar for uh, Up, and we're walking, he said, all right, so now you're walking through, you're walking through uh, Monsters, Inc., and he'll, t you know, we had pictures of the, of the uh, scare floor, and I said, um, well, could I walk by uh, like a, I don't know, like a big slug that like oozes stuff? <laughs> and he went, okay, we can do that <laughs> to do it. So we, there was some line about it, and I don't know, and it, he ended up being this thing, and now you see him younger. I'm late for class. Yeah. <laughs> and he just goes like that, and then he shows up. If you look at the very end of the movie, he finally <laughs> arrives, and it's the last, the school's over. You know, so you gotta say through all the credits. Which was, you know, apropos the j joke about, you know, this guy's home alone and the doorbell rings and he opens the door and there's a snail there. Sure. And he goes, what is this? And he picks it up and he throws it away. Two years later, the guy's home watching TV, <laughs> the doorbell rings, he opens it up and there's the snail and the snail goes, uh, you want to tell me what that was all about? <laughs> <laughs> On Sunday, June 16th, the Much Music Video Awards took over the corner of Queen and John in downtown Toronto for one of the year's biggest events in the city. Co-hosting the night was international star Psy, with stars like Demi Lovato, Drake, Philip Phillips, Serena Ryder, and Taylor Swift on hand to perform, accept some awards, and show off for their fans. Backstage, the party was a little quieter in the Q&A room, where media met with revolving door lineup of stars. You never quite knew what to expect back there, and after covering the event for 12 years, I can say I've seen the highs and lows, but it is always interesting. Here are a few clips from some of the stars who came backstage to the press room, including Ed Sheeran, Avril Lavigne, and Classified with David Miles and director R.T., who talked about their hit, Inner Ninja. This is my 15th album. I've been doing this since I was 15 years old in 1996. Just a little kid, like, making records on my four-track and stuff, so... To have a song that even does good on a hip-hop level, just even bigger than just the Maritime of Atlantic Canada, it's just kind of, even that's just still eye-opening to me. Like, it's kind of crazy that people really care about my music, but when it's like, you know, even the album going number one the first week it came out, that was over country music. We were talking about it earlier, right? But, uh, you know, it, I don't know, it's just, it's been such a slow climb that it's kind of, never been like holy shit this is happening right now but when you kind of look back and you kind of reminisce on it you start looking at it and go okay it's kind of crazy that it's done this it's done that it's it's played on the edge it's played on pop radio hip-hop radio rap radio whatever you want to call it so it's cool because we just go in the studio like that song me and dave we went there and just 
We made a song, something we liked. We knew it was different. We knew it was quirky. We knew it was about ninjas, and no one made a song about ninjas. That was just fucked up in his own way, so. We were freaked out in some way, so we were down. Song about ninjas? You can't do that. Can't lose ninjas. That's the moral of the story. You can't lose it, I guess we thought we were being more subtle. Like, I thought it was kind of a subtle way of being positive, and, and, and it was great that, that I think without saying, as you were saying, it's not like just an outwardly positive song, and that, that would be almost too simplified or something. And, and so it was just really great to see people respond to it. I think it's been much more direct than we ever expected. I don't know yeah, if it makes I sense. Remember, but, uh, a young girl's mother came up to me and was just like, I hope you know how much, you know, how positive this song is on kids and stuff. And I never really looked at it like that. Like, I never looked at it like as the anti-bully song or anything. But then when it was done and she said that, I was kind of stepped back and looked at the song and I'm like, okay, it's definitely that vibe. It's like, you know, we have battles, we gotta get through, we have obstacles, we gotta get through the daily bullshit of life. And when you look at it and having someone that as young as my daughter, like two years old, singing it, loving it, like Daddy played the ninja song, and I'm like, I don't want to hear the ninja song. <laughs> or like, uh, I, you know, someone 60, 60, 70 years old being like, I love that song. It's kind of like, you know, it's crazy. I think it's that, crazy. I think that what made, what really nailed it though is, I mean, to be too, to classes credited was your verse because oh, I had to. I say I had, the kids on no man, your verse was what kind of like it took it down that road, and I think there's like a directness in hip hop that is there inherently lyrically. There's so much focus on it that for me, those are the kind of things I've been learning from coming from my perspective. I wrote that first line. I read the rules before I broke up that, and then you know you took it from there into into such an amazing place. So it's always fun for me to watch an idea kind of exploded in this totally different direction when, when you work with someone as, as gifted as, as little. What's great about, about class is that, you know, he's just telling his story. You know, he's telling the story to the person which is hip-hop, that's hip-hop, man. Telling your own history and letting people know. And it's a beautiful thing that you're telling your, your history, but it's informing the next generation, you know what I mean? To not give up and to keep pushing and just keep doing what they believe in. It's, it's, it's you know, Next up, here's Ed Sheeran with Media Room host Teddy Wilson asking about Sheeran's fans. When you were getting screamed out on the red carpet, I saw you met Anna, your biggest fan. Do, yeah. a, do a lot of people claim to be your biggest fan? And have you have you verified whether there is one biggest fan yet? Um, I think I think no no matter when they start listening to the music, whether it was five minutes ago or five years ago, yeah. it doesn't it doesn't really matter. But I I always say I always say I did a gig over the road from my house when I was thirteen, and uh, four people turned up, and two of them were my parents. And so if you weren't at that gig, you can't claim to be. So those two. Other fans, they're your biggest fans. Yeah. yeah, I think they might be dead now though. They were quite old. Oh good. Yeah, they were my mom and dad's friends. Well, it was a really awkward gig. Nice really of them to awkward. come. Yeah, it was cool. It was cool. I still, I still actually got the little poster from the gig. Oh really? Yeah. yeah it was three pounds a ticket. Wow. Got all the tickets were comped, so. <laughs> <laughs> Not your biggest gig, but you've come yeah. a long way. Yeah. It's, the fans, the fans are usually they're intense for a little bit, and then once you speak to them, they're completely they're just human. So you just like have a conversation with the mums. The mums can push too far. There was a mum. There was a mum in uh, San Francisco. I was doing the gig, and she came. She'd like 
fought her way backstage with her daughter, and she was like, oh, so this is my daughter, and we were like having, just having a like conversation, you know, and uh, she was like, so Carrie Underwood was the first kiss for this 10-year-old boy, so I was wondering, could you be my daughter's first kiss? And I'm, I'm like, well, I'm 22 and your daughter's nine, so no. <laughs> So like, there have been experiences, she, she wouldn't leave it, she, would, she pushed it, like, uh, so there have been experiences like, like that. The fans, the fans are always very polite and very sweet. Sometimes the mums push it too far. Only occasionally, though. Only occasionally. And I think it's because they're, they're kind of living out their childhood a little bit through their kids as well. Yeah. Last up, here's Avril Lavigne talking about her sixth appearance on the MMVAs. It's always so exciting to be here at the MMVAs because I remember coming home from school every night and putting much music on and watching music videos and seeing the MMVAs and wanting to be up there. Yeah. And so I remember wanting to be on the award show, wanting to be a performer and dreaming and dreaming and and basically, you know, when when I performed here when I was seventeen, besides the fact that my ass crack was showing, um, it was it was very surreal. And to be here today, again, like 11 years later, performing, and I also received an award tonight, I'm very grateful and I'm very thankful. And, you know, every time I come to the Much Music Awards, I'm just like, wow, this is, this is so dope. I did it. This is cool. I made it. And, you know, I just wanted to be a musician, and music is my dream. It was my goal, and I'm just so extremely grateful. I remember one year I got really emotional and I cried when I accepted an award. Um, I also remember when I was 17 on the first album, winning one of my first awards, which was a, a it was a Moon Man for the MTV Awards, and I was so young I had like no idea even what I was doing except that I was winning an award, and I remember walking up stage on stage at the MTV Awards and saying, oh, thank you, MTV, and thank you, Much Music. And like, I had no idea at the time. It's kind of funny, you're, you're like, not really supposed to do that, but being from Canada, yeah, very meaningful to me. So super excited to be here this evening and to have won an award and uh, to, so excited to have performed. I've written a song called Hello Kitty. It's it has like an electronic vibe, which is very different for me. And it's the first time I've experimented in that whole world. Um, I love Hello Kitty. I'm, I, have a, I have like an obsession. So I wrote a song called Hello Kitty. It's really fun. It's about like a slumber party and loving the kitty and just a whole other thing. And I guess you guys will probably hear it when the record comes out. And it comes out in September. During the television upfronts two weeks ago, I had the opportunity to interview the stars of CTV's new comedy, Satisfaction, which debuts at 8 o'clock p.m. on Monday, June 24th. The cast for the show includes comedian Ryan Belleville, who plays a third wheel who lives with his married best friends, played by Leah Renee and Luke McFarlane. Here's Belleville introducing the concept of the series, followed by the trio talking about creator Tim McAuliffe's work to bring elements of his real life to television. I understand that it's, you know, the, the couple with the third wheel, basically. Mm -hmm. yeah. But how, So where, where do we come into the story? Wait a second, am I the third wheel? What? <laughs> He's just <laughs> finding out. 
<laughs> well, it's um, it's a it yeah, shows about a group. blackout, right? That's the first one. Yep, that's the very first episode. Well, I mean, uh, you mean as in just what the show is about in general, or yeah. Well, and also where where we start out with where we Meeting discover us, you guys. Us? Yeah, we've been living together for a little while, uh, and uh, myself, my character is named Mark, and uh, Jason have been friends since college, and uh, he has now got a long term uh, relationship, played by Leah. And uh, who plays Maggie? And uh, but we're all we're all friends, and we all live together. Yeah. And um, in fact, when you first find us, uh, we're literally dealing with that thing where when a couple lives with a friend, where uh, we're trying to be um, intimate, and our buddy is you know keeps slipping <laughs> in on us. Yeah. So that that you know part and of the, the joys of living with your yeah. mm -hmm. of all that. Yeah, they they are they are all friends, and they all oh, yeah, enjoy all living together. Yep. But there are moments where it kind of butts Problems. up, yeah. Right. And our very first episode is a, a very good Toronto episode because it all deals with a blackout. Yes. So pretty much the whole episode takes place during a heat wave and a blackout, which yep. I think any local resident of uh, Toronto will relate to. <laughs> and know just how horrible that can be. Yeah. And specifically a problem when you're having an argument with your girlfriend about something and you can't use the internet to resolve that problem. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, I love too that the story is basically Tim's story. I mean, mm -hmm. this is this yeah. is basically taken from his life. Yep. Uh, were there any points where he's giving you direction, going, "Well, I would have done it like this," or you know, like <laughs> uh, Tim's been great. Like he, he, you know, he was very obviously concerned with casting and finding people who had the right chemistry because it's very close to his real life. Right. But uh, um, he seems very happy, and, and uh, <laughs> he really wanted one of the most handsome actors in the business to play himself. <laughs> So, uh, and Luke was already booked for this so. role, so he had to sell on me. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, the characters have kind of taken on a life of their own and gone beyond it. But a lot of the storylines have uh, definitely originated from his yeah. own life or right. just writers' stories about relationships or being single. I don't know about you guys, but this was the first time that I played somebody that actually really exists. Mm -hmm. So meeting uh, the, the, oh, guy I, too, I the guy I played was I was really, going to ask if you'd met the people. Yeah. Well, it was funny. You know, obviously they know that it's comedy. Their life does not, you know, totally look like this. But it was definitely like, I felt like, oh my god. Yeah. And the first thing he said to me, I was wearing a baseball cap, and he goes, I wouldn't wear that cap. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I mean, so where does the story go? What is this kind of like? It's kind of the the moments that happen kind of each week in their kind of what existence together. What stupid thing are they up to now? Well, yeah, there's a lot of a lot of the stories generate from really nice, small, relatable areas. Right. And we try to uh, kind of spiral them. Uh, I mean, it's a comedy. You try to take them to the uh, nth degree. Right. Like in the pilot <laughs> episode, uh, my character is just super broke, and he bought all those, like, basically went to a Costco type place, bought all his food that's going to last him three months uh, and put it in the freezer and that's when the blackout happens and he's just dealing with being broke and losing more or less his life savings and then uh, and they're starting from an, like a very small argument Argument. over a movie. It seems really small, but then in the end, it, it ends up that we're, we're actually kind of fighting really like a bigger, else. just something else. I think our, our real hope is that people watching it can go like, oh, I totally know that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's happened to me. I mean, we, mm -hmm. usually, we take it a little bit further because, you know, it's a comedy, but I, I think that the seed is always something that like people can go like, oh yes, I know exactly how they feel. I've been there. Yeah, the jumping off points are always very relatable, and yeah. maybe that's because uh, it 
the, the source material uh, or what the show is based on is a, a real thing. Yeah. Right. Um, but there's there's seldom episodes where it's like shenanigany, like this the setup is like okay this one they all go to the rodeo and learn how to ride bulls like but there's an alien there there's an alien there <laughs> that'd be fun right <laughs> yeah so I mean otherwise I mean in terms of comedies in Canada it's interesting that you know we kind of had a dry spell and now it seems like there's a lot there's a few coming out for the fall. Mm -hmm. um, you know, what do you guys think positions you as the the, the comedy that's going to dominate? It's really funny, guys. Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, it's a really funny. It is a really, really funny <laughs> no, show. It is. I mean, we we have a uh, we have crew and people have been working on corner cast and things like that. It's just even seeing the crew light up and get so excited to work on the show yeah. and just say, "Have you read the script?" Like talking about how they've read the scripts yeah. right. and they've watched, been watching at the monitors yeah. and uh, a crew that laughs on like the sixth take and is engaged. Yeah, that says yeah. a lot. Unheard of. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, I think it's just a really, I think it's a really funny, funny show. I can't speak for the other comedy shows and I hope right. that they're all great because uh, Canada is such a funny, funny country. Yeah. And I think that... A lot and, of talented, funny people. Yeah, I think the last five years or six years, um, there's been kind of a, a revolution in drama mm -hmm. where right. broadcasters have realized that they can really make great Canadian dramas that look as good as you know anything that could be on in the states, uh, but are our Canadian shows, and I think they're starting to clue in a bit that oh yeah we can still do this with comedy, and you mm -hmm. see that big push at uh, all the networks, especially uh, CTV. Yeah, totally. And I'm so grateful that I mean, growing up, Canadians were the funny people on TV. They really, really were, and yeah, that kind of did go away. So it's 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 nice to be able to go back to that. Mm -hmm. yeah. I think people are really hungry to see uh, stuff that. That is, I mean, that is Canadian. That isn't just, oh, you know, you're a Canadian. You want to see? I mean, it's talking about downstairs. Like, you don't yeah. want to just see the the kind of hacky, cliche Canadian jokes. Yeah. It's at the end of the day, eighty percent of Canadians live in a uh, an urban center. Yeah. And have typical urban prop like they're dealing with public transport. They're dealing with relationships. Yeah. They're dealing with dating, banking. Most people don't spend their day making jokes about the prime minister. <laughs> Or you know or things like that. They, I hit another moose. I hit another moose on my way. <laughs> That's right. On my way to work. This week at Lake Shenanigan. How are we going to make it to the curling competition? We were locked inside this teepee. Uh, igloo. 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 Sorry. Yeah. That's right. Before we get to new music this week, I've got one lonely Blu-ray review for you. Brian Singer's Jack the Giant Slayer, which just arrived on Tuesday. Uh, the film stars Nicholas Holt as Jack, Eleanor Tom Tomlinson as uh, Isabel, Ewan McGregor as Elmont, and Stanley Tucci as Roderick. Um, in terms of kid-friendly fare, this one is uh, pretty easygoing. Uh, the story is okay. If you're a kid, it's, it's going to be enjoyable. If you're an adult, it uh, slows down at points and is a little boring and ridiculous and all the rest. Um, it's not a bad film, but it's not a good film. Uh, the film treads water throughout the entire run, and for Brian Singer, that's kind of a huge disappointment, especially for me, because I've always been a Brian Singer fan. Uh, I think X2 is one of my favorite uh, comic book hero movies. The problem is that, you know, even with Nicholas Holt, who actually carries the film very well, and as does the rest of the cast, and it's refreshing to see Ewan McGregor not playing a villain, uh, and it's refreshing to see Stanley Tucci playing a villain. So in those ways, you know, things work here and there, but uh, overall... Nothing that's going to astound you. Uh, you could certainly wait to catch this on uh, 
on TV when it comes out. If you do end up getting the Blu-ray just because you have, you know, younger kids who might enjoy it, um, there are a few features that are worth watching. Uh, I mean, the, the gag reel is, is pretty, pretty amusing for a one-time shot. A couple things like that, but overall, definitely a, a, a Blu-ray you can skip this week. Closing out this week's podcast is Lexi and the Kill with their track, Rope Swing. The band, who hail from London, England, just released their new single, We Can Dance Alone, on June 4th, with the B-side, The Ballad of Love and Hate. The five-piece features 20-year-old Lexi leading the band that seems destined for great things. They just opened for Blondie, in fact, and they're currently on tour with the band in the UK until July the 4th. Check out LexiandTheKill.com for more information, and here's Rope Swing. Be sure to check them out on SoundCloud for the single We Can Dance Alone. She wasn't sure if she should leave the room while he undressed. She wasn't sure if on the bed she was looking her best. Was 63. They were young and holding back, married on the golden beach. Lipstick stuck to her mouth, stuck to her mouth. Oh, we be alive, I don't care. I won't survive this, darling. She doesn't like what she sees. She tries to up to please. Back. 